You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Chris Landa, founder of Transparent Influence. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's start off by talking about how you got your start in this crazy digital video. <laughs> I think I had a very interesting path. I loved web series a very long time ago, and through that love, decided to go into television. When I moved to LA and I actually finished Carnegie Mellon's Master of Entertainment Industry Management program, I was working in TV. I was actually at CAA. And through my internships previously at places like Sci-Fi, I realized I didn't like TV. You know, there was way too many people giving opinions on a script, and I thought that everything took way too long when it should be much shorter, which was digital. Digital had very few people working on it, wearing a lot of hats, and that was very appealing to me. So when Machinima raised their round, $45 million, with Redpoint and a few other people, I actually, through some people I already knew, was offered a spot in the company. And that was on the partnership management team because at the time, you know, they were just ramping up and becoming the MCN that they were. At that time, I mean, they were the first multi-channel network. They had that kind of brand that everyone would be a part of. So they were just bringing on like hundreds of channels a week. So I was kind of brought in to be the second in command to really help get that department up and running. So we had a direct line of communication to all the creators. And we really were just servicing them as opposed to just, hey, come into our network, cool. Now you're stuck. So built that out. And then around that time in 2012, brand deals were becoming a thing on YouTube. At the time, they just added value. So we were selling media and they were like, hey, we'll throw in this video with this person for free. And because of the success of that, we had a few kind of CPA deals that had really amazing results that we kind of had to start focusing on that. So along with two other people, I kind of formed that team. And so I headed execution around all the brand integrations with network talent. So it's amazing to see how influencer marketing has changed from then to now with digital creators. So you started really in the traditional world at CAA, which is a tough gig to get, especially uh, moving out here and planting roots in LA for the first time. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I do a lot of talks for Carnegie Mellon, especially a lot of kind of alumni panels. And everyone's like, what was it like at CAA? And I think it was very different for me because I was already working in PR before I went to graduate school. I already had that work experience. And when I was at Sci-Fi, I was interning, but I was regularly on a desk that was for two SVPs. So I was covering their desk. I was killing it. It was actually probably the most high-stress assistant job I ever had, <laughs> just because there was always something going, and they were the focal points. And because of that, and I think just the confidence that people had in me when I went to CA and I was in TV business affairs, like I wasn't in the glamorous ones that people fight over, it was easily apparent that I was capable of doing the job. So I didn't have to go through the mailroom. was put on a desk. I worked for a really great guy. And then, you know, around a year later, I kind of realized I need to go and be doing stuff. <laughs> so how did you hear about the mission opportunity? You mentioned you had some contacts, so you work at CEA, they had just raised that funding. Who did you get in touch with? How did you know about this emerging digital media? Scene? Yeah, so a man named Nathan Jordan is to blame for my whole entire career. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I hope he listens to this. 
And how that whole thing happened was I was writing for TubeFilter. I was actually doing web series reviews while I was at CAA. And just through that and going to the meetups. And, you know, at that time, our community was very, very small. I met him and a few other people. And they actually approached me on a job before the one I took, which I just said no to because I think it was that interesting. And at the time, I'm like, a YouTube network? Like, how does that make money? Like, cat videos. I was one of those people. And then when I looked into it the second time they came around, I decided to take it. And then after seeing how much people were making back in 2012, I realized that this was a real business. It's nothing to where it was now, but then it was still a massive eye-opener. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Mishima was really one of the first networks. So Wild West, right? No rules, no understanding of how to work with influencers, help them develop their careers. You guys were figuring it out as you went on the fly. Yeah. Nobody was really thinking that long-term. I think Mishinima due to the desire to do a lot of in-house content and a lot of actual of the kind of OG gaming influencers came up through Machinima and actually working with Respawn or Realm or even just the Machinima main channel being part of their director's program, which basically allowed you to put your content on the Machinima channel, which was at the time a great way of increasing your own subscriber base. And I think because of that, you know, Machinima was in some ways very forward thinking about, oh, we want to be working with these creators to be doing content, right? And that was kind of as far as it went. I think on the brand deal side, even though the influencer component was always, in a sense, kind of beating the in-house component, it was never treated that way. It was always seen as like the, well, that's doing really well right now. It should be the focal point, but we really want to be this long-term, so we're going to focus on this, even though it's not showing the same signs of success as the influencer component was. And what was it like working with talent? What were the challenges? It was just the beginning of it. It was young. It was different. I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a really large YouTube creator named Jerome ASF. And I was telling him this story. (laughs) The big thing to me is that if I'm in a partnership with somebody that I am communicative and I'm always there. And there was a kid that was doing really well, but you know, they're like 16, 17 and they're hitting me up on Skype and I'm there more mainly to like help with technical stuff. And he was telling me about how his grandmother just passed away and he needed someone to talk to. Wow. And so I think that in a weird way, it just, the kind of way in which the creators were looking to the company or looking to the people at the company, it was very different than you would think that an actor would look at CAA. And that, I think, was one of the challenges. The maturity was not there in the same way, which created a lot of different issues. That was an extreme example in one case, but, you know, just sometimes somebody would be unhappy about something and just tweet and, like, name people by name and... You know, you have those situations happening right now. So I think just the maturity was the challenge. And also the fact that no one really knew what they were doing. I mean, nobody knew what they were doing back then. I think everyone was trying to figure it out. I still think, especially the MCNs, are still trying to figure it out. <laughs> but it was a great place to be. Because when you're in an environment that's getting lots of money, and everyone's just trying to figure it out, and you're willing to work hard and wear a lot of hats, you can learn so much in such a short period. I feel like graduate school is great for me, but... My time at Machinima and my, the first few years working in online video was probably more educational. So yeah. from that formative period, you went and worked at another early stage company yeah. with a lot of money and trying to figure out what was happening in online video. Tell us yeah. about Base79. Yeah, so I did two stints at Machinima, two tours of duty as I call it. So after the first one, I was at Base79, which was UK-based MCN. And I kind of ended up working with a guy named Ben Lister, who's awesome. And him and I were in charge of the U.S. office and establishing the presence in the U.S. They tried before, it didn't work out, uh, where they went to New York. And Ben and I kind of tackled the U.S. We were a good team. We should actually have a buddy comedy on a network. (laughs) And I handled operations and also helped him with some biz dev. 
we worked with some really big clients, but that was interesting because coming more from a gaming entertainment, then I'm working with news and sports and all these other verticals. And the kind of most amazing thing of it is while I knew audience, kind of the audience development side because of working with creators and having access to those analytics and seeing how everything was working, to then go and actually do a lot more on the rights management side was fascinating. I actually was part of, I think I was one of the first groups that YouTube ever did their kind of content ID rights management certification for. So I went out to New York. I think I was a guinea pig. I don't know how I was in there. I learned all about content ID and that became a huge component of my life for about a year. And even today, it's still really great knowledge to have, especially the rights conversations with major publishers kind of hit the front page of a lot of the news sources I look at. It's great to have that context of going, well, that's where it started five years ago. And these are the current issues that no one really talks about that are making it so difficult. So contrast your experience at Machinima with Base. What were the biggest differences between the two? I think just the biggest differences were just the content verticals. I think gaming entertainment and focusing solely on just getting that content out and monetizing it was very different from the rights management play. And that's what we were about. I think that we had, I mean, of course, there was a creator network, there's a lot of things, but the big kind of focus of the company was more on the rights management side. And you mentioned after that, you go back to Machinima. So what changed in the interim? What was the return period like? Yeah, so I was at Base 79, which is just getting acquired by Rightster. And it was an interesting time because Rightster had a U.S. office. There was a lot of moving pieces. They wanted to keep me on. At one point, I think I was talking to one person about moving to London. And then one of the co-founders of Rightster was like, you're coming to New York. So it was great to be fought over. <laughs> While that was happening... It really made me start to think about, okay, well, what is my future with this company? And at the time, Machinima came back. Initially, I was like, no, like, why would I go back? <laughs> As anybody's worked in MCN knows, like, once you get out, you try to stay out. And then at that time, Machinima assembled. They went from being one of the top dogs to really suffering, having a lot of bad PR situations. And it really, you know, I think took a toll on the company and their reputation. But Warner Brothers actually came in as an investor, and they really wanted to replace the whole entire C-level. So pretty much the whole C-level was gone. Alan stepped aside and still was the chairman. But, you know, they brought in Chad and Daniel Tibbetts, who was my boss, who was the CCO. And there's never a CCO before. There was like a head of programming. But Daniel's job was very focused on just the quality of content and how it's going to work. So I sat down with Daniel, and Daniel was amazing. He's at Elray right now. Huge fan of his, so he should also be listening to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> and he basically sat down and told me how they wanted to include creators and in all of the content that's created. And that should be a focal point of the company. And that was a lot of what I wanted to do. And I was actually pitching actively to do my, during my first kind of tour of duty. And I got a lot of resistance. And it was something where it was just kind of heartbreaking to me because I, I kind of saw where it needed to go. And I was also seeing it even on the brand deal side, what was really selling. And when he sat down with me, he goes, this is really what I want to do. The reason why we were shot to you is because somebody else who actually left shortly after I joined was like, this is exactly what Chris wanted to do two or three years ago. So after meeting Daniel, I said, you know, excuse my language, fuck it. <laughs> he was really the main reason I went there. And I was there for a while. We did some really amazing things. You know, we went back to the new fronts. I did an animated series. I actually with Jerome, too, so we worked very closely on that, and that actually ended up selling to Verizon. So there was some really awesome work that we were able to do, and I think that it was the beginning of helping them repair the damage they were already experiencing in the market to the point where now they actually work really well with a lot of really big talent. And I think the team over there has continued that work and elevated it probably beyond what I could have elevated it to. But that's kind of why I came back and what that goal of it was. What a great chance to see your vision fully realized 
even if it were a few years later, have a chance to play a role in seeing that grow. Yeah, and it was just more fulfilling from a personal standpoint to be involved in the development meetings and really being helped push things forward and not being an afterthought. Because I think that, you know, and that's something we're also seeing in influencer marketing is that, yeah, there's certain people who understand that it's a huge component and it needs to be of equal size to all the other components. But there's still so many companies who are just tacking it on at the very end. And I felt that that started to have that talent first approach and it was paying dividends. And if they would have had that years before, things maybe would have been pretty different. So fast forward, Machinima ends up getting fully acquired by Warner Brothers yeah. a few years later. What was that outcome like for you having worked there? twice, you know, spending a lot of time invested in this company, being a big part of that in the formative stages of your early career. I was happy because it means it's going to be alive. <laughs> you know, I think that any MCN, especially at the time of that acquisition that's not been acquired, is slightly fearful for their lives. This is a hard space. I mean, when, when multi-channel networks started, they protected creators from content ID. It was the only way you could monetize. YouTube had no support. So there were real tangible benefits to being with one. But over time, YouTube has built out the support. They have completely changed content ID. You've had the apocalypse. There's been so many things that, you know, have taken away their offering. And so I was happy for it because I think that they can do great work under Warner Brothers. And they should, in a sense, be one of Warner Brothers' digital arms. I also think that when you're a multi-channel network that's raised probably over $100 million and you haven't sold and you're trying to sell to an investor, you're keeping costs low. There's a lot of things where I think now employees are being treated a little bit better than they were pre-acquisition. I'm not going to go into what those things are, but when I talk to a lot of the people who worked for me or worked with me, they're all a lot more positive about the company now, especially under Russell. So I think it's very telling that sometimes when an acquisition like that happens, it can be for the best and actually bring kind of people's energy and mood up. And here we are again with uh, Warner Brothers being acquired through Time Warner with the AT&T deal. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? What's happening at the even larger levels of media and entertainment? Uh, just my general thoughts. I want to move to an island without internet. <laughs> I think about that about 10 hours a week, probably. Consolidation's happening. We've seen it in digital, we're seeing it in traditional. All those futuristic movies were like those four companies controlling economy. We might get there. Who knows? I love Demolition Man, if you remember that classic movie. It was uh, Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes. In it, they have something called the Franchise Wars, where all the fast food franchises go to war, and Taco Bell wins. So every <laughs> restaurant in the future is Taco Bell. Great. Uh, I think at the end of the day, for me, it's about content. And I think in some ways, the consolidation's made it a lot easier. I think that if you look kind of at the SVOD market a little while ago, I mean, it needed consolidation. Full screen was trying to charge more than Netflix. And I think Netflix had, you know, a million times more relevant content. So I think consolidation is incredibly important for consumers. And I think as we get into digital, but it loses that spark. It loses that innovation. Someone was talking to me like, what's going to be the next Snapchat? What's going to be the next YouTube? What's going to be the next Instagram? And it's a really hard thing to ask right now because years ago, everyone was like, Vessel is going to be the new YouTube, right? And they were around for about two years and flamed out. But now it just seems that due to the consolidation, it's harder for new innovative ideas to come into the market and really take off hmm. without being acquired very early on. Or in Instagram's case, they're just going to take it, <laughs> yeah. you know, take the concept well, and run with it. What do you think is driving that? Is it market forces? Is it poor execution on the side of these early new media companies? What's the challenge there? I don't know necessarily if it's poor execution, because if you have poor execution, you're not going to get out of the gate. What I would say is that the amount of money and just eyeballs, I mean, how many apps do we have on our phone, but how many do we really use? And then if you look at your DAO, right, your daily active users, like that's such an important number for, I think, any platform, right? So it's really hard to fight for. And I think you've seen it with Snapchat. 
you know, Instagram rolls it out and people are using both and now they're just using Instagram. And that whole thing about Kylie Jenner, right? Tweets, oh, I just don't use it. And then they lose like a billion dollars. So I think it's just fighting for attention in the marketplace is becoming a lot more difficult, which means that, you know, for smaller companies, it's just going to be that much harder. And then Instagram's adding in different features one after another. And I think you're just seeing that, you know, when somebody owns that market, it's really hard to get a piece of it. So as traditional and digital continue to converge, what happens to the Disney's and the Time Warner's of the world? Are we going to see the media landscape ruled by Google and Facebook, Amazon and Netflix, or you know, is something gonna change? I don't think anything's really gonna change. Because at the end of the day, what's great about you know YouTube and Facebook is that one, they have a massive amount of users, but they're also about content delivery. And if you look at Disney and a lot of stuff, they're about content creation. So I don't think it's really going to change. I just think that this whole notion of like traditional media and digital media and short form and long form is just going to go away. If you look at Instagram going into long form content, they started by posting pictures. That's actually what I loved about it. I could just look at pictures. I could look at travel pictures. I could look at pictures of people surfing and love it. And now they're going to long form video. So I think it's just breaking down walls. And I think in some ways it's making it easier while making it a lot more convoluted. Let's talk a little bit about live video, because that was the next step in your career. After leaving Mission and I spent some time at you now. Yeah. What does the live video space look like? So the live video space was so enlightening to me. And I think it was enlightening for a few different reasons. You now achieved a lot of success, I think, especially with the younger demographic. And it was one of the first companies to really do live streaming in the U.S. And I think that they don't really get the attention or the respect they deserve for that. I think everyone focuses on Twitch, but you now was right there in a similar fashion. And they had a lot of big users and Instagram town that's coming up that's younger actually started on you now. And that's where they built their original fan base. So going to live, especially monetized live, was very interesting at that point in time. It raises a lot of issues around moderation, which is incredibly important. I think we're trying to see more and more of that kind of leak. That's one thing. And also just around the youth of influencers. Working at Machinima, even Base 79, and a lot of the kind of OG YouTubers, what you would see is that, especially because the money wasn't really there right away, is that they were a little bit older getting into it. They were a little bit more collaborative around the creation of their content. And they had time to kind of figure it out or find the right representation and get rid of the bad representation. But then with this younger set of influencers who just have a cell phone, and that's all they need, that kind of level of professionalism was a lot lower there was a lot of parents who were taking advantage of their kids in some ways. In other ways, the parents are just giving up their life to help take care of the kid and help with their blossoming career. And there's a few that I was actually really close to, some of the moms that were awesome. So it just was really challenging in that way. And I think that when you look at live streaming and that period of live streaming, you know, you now kind of had their foothold, but Live.me, which was backed by Cheetah Mobile, came into play. And they were just throwing money around. If anybody from Live.me is listening, you know what you did. And just like the MCNs inflated the rate in the market, which wasn't sustainable for companies. And I think they haven't ever told me if they felt that, but I imagine they would. And then, you know, you had Flurry and you just had so many live streaming platforms kind of pop up because that was a new hot thing. So, you know, you go from kind of competing with a few different companies to competing with everybody in the world, especially China-backed companies. And then Lively was launched through Musical.ly. And it just became a really difficult market. And I think that we're still seeing that in live. Live two years ago was all anybody was talking about. Now it's kind of, I mean, how often do you talk about live? Well, it just seems to me that the core platforms are going to own it. YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, yeah. and Twitch. Exactly. I think Mob Crush is an interesting one as well. They're kind of coming into play and pressing hard. I know Phil Rance is doing some good work over there. 
Phil, if you're listening, hello. Uh, <laughs> I think that live, you know, it is the future, but it also, there's a lot of concerns. And I think that once you work in it, you see it. You know, I think you see that moderation is incredibly important because people can take advantage of that live aspect. You know, you don't have the ability to edit anything out. I mean, we saw like after, I think Ninja was one of the people, you know, was becoming a huge breakout star of 2018, right? 2018, 2017. And he used the N-word singing along to a song. And so if you're a brand affiliated with him, like that's an issue. But it's also kids singing along to music. Still, I don't think it's acceptable. You know, kids are seeing that too. So like that's a danger with live. I think that's a danger that prevents brands from going into it more. Yeah, live is just a really weird, crazy world. But I did it for two years. I loved it. I had a really great team with you now. Now they're doing Rise, which is a new app. They actually did an ICO. So they're doing something very innovative where if you're basically somebody's contributing to the platform, you in a sense get some type of equity, right, through a cryptocurrency. Because you see it with YouTube and even with Instagram. Like some of the people who really were those first influencers, like they're not really around anymore and they have nothing to show for it. All those companies have made so much. So they're kind of offering as, hey, you can actually get something that will increase in value over time by being a part of this platform. So I think it's very, very interesting. So you're taking all these experiences of you working with influencers over the years, right? Yeah. From your time at Machinima to working at YouNowBase. Yeah. What about that cumulatively inspired you to launch Transparent Influence? I think a lot of it going from YouNow back to the early days at Machinima is that there were certain problems just not being solved. And those problems are around creator influence reliability. And the way in which a lot of creators on YouTube, especially this younger generation that's on Musical.ly and, and Instagram, the way they came up is just doing their own thing in the way in which they do it. And if you compare that to how we came up or somebody at an agency came up, it's very, very different. So there's different expectations on both sides. And I noticed that due to also the growth and the amount of money in the market, there's a lot of kind of more shady representation out there. And so I was working with a lot of really wonderful talent. I was working with some that wasn't. And I was working with some great managers and some that were just the shadiest people I've ever met. And what I noticed is that unless you knew them previously or had a track record with them or knew somebody who had a track record with them, it's really hard to tell what you're going to get out of it, right? Especially if you're doing any deals where there's upfront money involved. So after hearing all the horror stories that I've dealt with, everyone's dealt with about being burned or, you know, hey, we paid out this whole deal, but they only did 85% of the work. I kind of realized there had to be an easier way for us to share this information. So I started to think about creating a database of influencer reviews based off previous brand deals. And when I was leaving you now and doing this, I tested it. So I got a whole bunch of people I kind of knew in the industry contacts to do reviews. And it was interesting because through that, they were reviewing people I actually worked with myself. So I had a really good sense of what it was like to work with them. And having multiple reviews on the same influencer could tell you what they could. And it was pretty accurate uh, to the point where I'm like, I know exactly his strengths and his weaknesses. And so after that, I decided to build it. So I spent the last nine months building this platform, Transparent Influence, and it's been great. I have 1,100 reviews in, covers almost every vertical on YouTube and Instagram, and it's really insightful data. And I've learned so much by doing it and even been able to help kind of consulting clients who are trying to find the right people. Because if you're about to spend $20,000 on a campaign, that's a lot of money, right? And so you want to make sure that they're going to honor everything in the contract and it's going to be great. And so it's a great vetting tool. And the more I actually ended up talking to people about it, the more they want it for identification. So it's been a very interesting self-launched about two weeks ago. 
and just the feedback has been like very, very positive. And I would say that everybody who's worked in the industry for a few years, you know, that I know was reaching out to me saying, I'm glad somebody's building this. So that's kind of how it started. It's really about talent reliability. It's not the sexiest issue right now. It's not the one that's most covered. I think that in the last year, fake followers has become kind of the thing everyone's talking about. Before that kind of broke, everyone knew that there was fake followers who's working with Instagram. Like you just know. And there's also different types of fake followers that still don't get addressed. You talk about the pods, which is talked about a little bit, but there's a lot of very sophisticated pods out there. Also, when you look at like pods, those are real people. So they're not often actually subtracted from, like when somebody does an audit audit of fake followers, those people are actually usually not added or removed from their actual following. So fake followers is something that's existed. It's gotten a lot of headlines. If you do a proper job of vetting, it's easy to figure out. And that's why you should always be vetting somebody before you hire them. Especially you should be manually looking at their comments to gauge quality of comments as well. Nothing can tell you on the qualitative side. Reliability is just as much of a dangerous thing because if you hire somebody, it's a disaster. You know, you waste so much time, you waste so much money, there's so much frustration. And if you actually create a real accountability through what I'm trying to build out, you know, even people with fake followers, if you hire and you find out, you can actually help the rest of your community know that that person actually had a huge amount of fake followers and this is how it was figured out. You know, that's transparent influence. What are the challenges about being a first time founder? There's so many challenges. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think some of the challenges for me, so I'm based in Austin, Texas right now after, you know, a long period of time in LA and a short period of time in New York. I think doing it yourself is very, very difficult. Like I have people on my team, but when every decision is your decision, when you have a certain amount of capital and then you have to get to a certain place, it's very stressful. And I think that when I worked for somebody else, I was really good at making that company better. I think that's one of my strongest attributes. But to do it all on your own and to have to lead five different initiatives at the same time, it's always a challenge. So it's like, how are you being productive? How are you being focused? How are you keeping your morale up? Because when this is what you do day in and day out, the smallest thing can kind of knock you off that horse, which you think about in two weeks, like, why was I so annoyed about that? But that just is that game. It's higher stakes. Like when we soft launched, I didn't sleep like a week. Probably didn't eat much either. <laughs> just because, you know, it's, it's also, you know, you're putting something out there. You know, it's, you know, you're putting your name on the line, you're doing it. And a lot of people applaud that. And I think a lot of people in their mind go, yeah, doing a startup would be great, but it takes a lot of work and it's a lot of moving pieces. And quite frankly, it's been absolutely terrifying. But the flip side is it's unbelievably rewarding too to actually see something come together and have people go, you're actually doing something about this when nobody else was. So while I spent five minutes talking about the terror, uh, there's a lot of really positive things it's about true. it. You experience the full spectrum of emotions somehow all at once. Yeah, I think it's the best therapist you could ever have. Because I realized so much about myself, even how I manage people. I have such a greater awareness of myself and my good habits and my bad habits and things I should improve on to be more successful in the future. And I, except for going to therapy or having an executive coach, I think starting a startup is the best thing you can do. <laughs> there we go. So what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Oh, that's a hot cast in itself. I think the best thing that I did, I'll, I'll say the best thing I did and the worst thing I did. The best thing that I did was while I was building this out, I had a lot of time to work with other industry professionals to get these reviews in, to test it out, to understand the direction the company needed to take. And I think that it's incredibly important to do that. You may have an idea, but the market is gonna react very differently. And my whole thing is get feedback and innovate. And I think a lot of people talk about like, that's what you should do as a startup. It's helped me even today, you know, in meetings I'm in now, they're like, you should be focusing on this or that. 
I don't say, well, no, this is my vision. I go, okay, well, why? And does it make sense for the long run? And I think being open and collaborative, it's really beneficial. It also will help you create advocates. So I have a lot of people who really believe in what I'm doing, and that's helped me in terms of having that community around me. But it's also helped bring other people into the fold to contribute and to do that. The worst mistake I probably made, so you know, I have, I have funding, I'm, I'm good. You know, I had a consulting job that was lined up that fell through. And I think that looking back, I probably would have maybe delayed or done things differently there to make sure that I would have had that money coming in the door. Because I think that, you know, it's good, especially in the very beginning, to make sure that you have that, you have some kind of capital coming in, unless you're relying 100% on an investment, which is fine. But for me, I never wanted to do that. I always wanted to have some kind of control over my destiny. I've done other consulting work. That wasn't that big of a blow. I think when I launched this, I probably would have made sure things were a little bit different. So I had kind of a better, yeah, I don't know. I think that's, I'm going to say I actually believe that bad. Yeah, I mean, it's not even about safety. It's just that if you're planning on something, when you exit, you need to make sure it's there. I think that's really what I'm trying to get at. If you need clients to generate revenue when you leave, you need to have letters of intent before you exit. So I think I could have done that better. But as you can tell through my job history, I always kind of roll the dice. That's just who I am. Like, if I believe in an idea, I go for it. If I believe in a cause, I go for it. And this is my own cause. So I was fine rolling the dice. And it's worked out for me. Very cool. So let's switch gears a little bit. We're recording this right before VidCon next week. Oh, yeah. You know, the pinnacle of uh, online video madness. Yeah. So for the first year, we have a competing conference right at the same time, a mile away, TanaCon. What do you think? Yeah. So I was always wondering, like, what was going to be the slam dance to VidCon? And TanaCon came out of nowhere. It was a video she released, I think, two months ago. I think potentially, like, I don't know, sometime, right? Go on to YouTube, you'll find it. Where, you know, Tana detailed her whole history with VidCon and said she was going to start her own. And I thought it was so interesting to hear her point of view. Don't necessarily agree with all of her point of view. But, you know, VidCon has always been something that in the creator community is split opinion for a few reasons. And a lot of it's that it's a curated convention conference for online video. Open call, come if you want to, anyone can attend. Exactly. And I think that, you know, it's really important to the founders that they have the tone that they want. I've worked with VidCon a lot. I have great relationships with them, and they're very particular about who they want there because they want to represent their opinion the best of online video and having great topics and great conversation and elevate the industry in that way. But kind of like YouTube itself, it runs into one very big issue. You talk about YouTube and YouTube's like, oh, we want to be on the right side of history. Their algorithm promotes drama. You can't get away from that because it's all about engagement. What's more engaging than drama? And when you think of it like that, the most popular creators may not be the ones that you think are a great example to a five-year-old child. And I think because of that, it makes it so a lot of creators who are much bigger are like, well, I should be a featured creator, not this person, right? And I think they actually have a point in a lot of ways because they're a huge name. They bring with them a huge audience. There's that recognition aspect. Like, if you're doing the Oscars and you don't have The Rock show up, <laughs> but he's one of the people making $20 million a movie, it's kind of questionable from that. But in this case, you know, I think the VidCon is, they're a business, right? They have their mission statement, they have their objectives, but it's clashed a little bit with certain types of creators. I'm not taking sides though, by the way. <laughs> I'll say that right now. And because of that, it's created TanaCon. So and what can we expect from the first year of TanaCon? I think TanaCon's going to be very, very interesting. I think that security, I'm concerned about security, to be honest. I think that VidCon's had years to figure it out. 
and they have a convention center and they have a heavy dose of capital. Tanakai I don't think has that. So it's going to be scrappier. And when you have a lot of really big influencers around, like when you have Tana around, I think it's very interesting what's going to happen from a fan perspective. I mean, the whole reason she claims that VidCon doesn't want her there is because her fans were so rabid they were breaking windows and causing scenes. So if you just move that location, does it actually get better? And at that time, she wasn't announced to be anywhere in particular. And so now she's going to have like set dates in which she'll, she'll be places at Tanacon. So I think security is going to be really interesting. I think seeing what, what, what talent goes between is going to be very interesting. I would say that is going to, the two things that will be the most interesting. Do you think VidCon has changed or will change as a result of its acquisition by Viacom? Undoubtedly. I think that when your founders are from the YouTube community themselves and they're calling the shots, that's one thing. But then when you have a bigger company that has their own agendas, it will change. Now, does that mean it won't change for the better? It could change for the better. I think a lot of people at Viacom are really smart and they're really trying to get into the space in a very proactive manner. The biggest shift in VidCon, I think, happened last year, where the creators had their own different hotel, which is about a mile away. I think it's like 1.2 miles. Resulted in an emotional change or a tonal change to the event itself. Yeah, and so there was a lot less of the frenzy. I used to call them zombie attacks, because you'd see one person run and everyone was flood after them, like the Walking Dead. So I always thought that was very interesting. I think there's like less creators who are there just in general or hanging out. They always kind of go back or take their shuttles back. I lost that energy. From a business perspective, it's better, but I think from a, if you want to really feel that energy, it's not there in the same way. It's more controlled. But also, it needs to be more controlled because security has been an issue. The only way that you can really make it a safe convention, especially for younger people, is if you tightly control that. Another thing that I wanted to ask you, now along the lines of the fact that uh, TanaCon is claiming that it's being left out by YouTube, even though it represents this other element, which is a, an audience on the platform, and VidCon has an editorial stance and takes position to curate the experience for the people who attend, reminds me of the recent Spotify scandal where they blackballed R. Kelly from the discovery algorithms and being featured in some of their playlists, which is, of course, a big way that a lot of people listen to and discover music on the platform. And then they get all this pressure from artists and labels, and they kind of reverse their stance. So what is your opinion about these big companies, these platforms, taking a position, moral authority on something, and then the pressure that they're receiving from these outside sources to change their views? Well, I mean, I think you can also look at a lot of political examples in the campaign <laughs> that, you know, really hurt Hillary, too. I think any organization is going to I don't think that's unique to our space. I think that was my point about politics, is that every kind of company, every brand, every organization has their own agenda. And if you look at something like YouTube, right? I mean, like YouTube puts a lot of money into VidCon, right? And I'm sure for VidCon, like that's been a challenge in some ways because a lot of the other platforms have also boomed. When somebody buys in early and has their own objective, how do you manage that relationship? So I think that's probably been a challenge for VidCon. And then with TanaCon, I don't know what they were expecting. YouTube is sponsoring VidCon. And yeah, VidCon started as the meeting of all of the big YouTubers at the time, but ultimately YouTube gets something out of it. They get tangible benefits out of it from a brand side. If they really want to work with the bigger platforms, I think they can. They just have, what's that offering? And it's their first year. Their first year VidCon existed, it was in a dumpy hotel in Century City. I think people forget about that. People look at the success of it now. But originally, it took time to build, and it took time to see that potential, and then UTA's done a really wonderful job with it, you know, and people forget that. So to expect everything handed to you right off the bat doesn't make sense. Now in terms of platforms like 
maybe doing kind of some shady shit <laughs> around you know, making sure certain people aren't promoted or featured, ultimately they're a business and they're gonna make certain decisions. And if somebody's bringing you a lot of bad press or you're worried about something, you're gonna probably err on the side of caution and try to get them to have less attention on them. But it can backfire because if people find out, it creates a scandal, especially like in the Arkawa situation, like he has fans. So it's always that balance. And having worked at a platform and having worked at an MCN, I mean, you get a lot of situations that are not black and white and you just have to do your best. Sometimes the outcome's what you want, sometimes the outcome's not what you want, but that's life. Like I've had things blow up in my face and when I've had just the best of intentions, and I think anybody running a business or anybody who's worked in this field knows. I actually always joke that anybody who's worked in MCN has blood on their hands. Because, <laughs> you know, it was land grab. Everyone was trying to be number one. There's a lot of money. And so I think that a lot of creators got shafted. And even though I did my best to fight for them, it was really hard. And there was one I was actually uh, a friend I was talking to that I knew from my first stint at Machinima. And he talked about that. And he goes, you know, I was sometimes not treated well. And I was treated well until years later when I was bigger. But also, you know, the company's mindset had to change. And it was very interesting to hear his point of view. It's never easy. That's my answer. Yeah, it's certainly tough. And hopefully as the space matures, things are getting better for influencers, for media agencies, for brands, for everyone involved. What are your predictions? What do you think is coming next? When I look at what's coming next, what really makes me the most excited, one is the Facebook creator matching tool, where Facebook is looking to roll out their own influencer marketplace tool. I think there's over 100 influencer marketplaces on the ecosystem. Oh, easily. Yeah. Way and, more than that, yeah. I, I stopped counting because it made me depressed. <laughs> and they're offering what Facebook's going to offer. Facebook doing that across Facebook and Instagram, I think, is going to be a huge game changer. And I think that Facebook actually can do some really amazing things in helping connect brands and influencers in a better way and actually give way more insights that are currently given on Instagram which, you know, are nowhere near as good as YouTube, in my opinion. And do you think that that's ultimately going to reside with the platforms? Much in the same way we talked about earlier, that they captured yeah. the live streaming market, because obviously YouTube goes out and buys FameBit. Facebook's building its own internal tool for Facebook and Instagram. Do people want a platform-specific solution? Do they want something that's going to operate multi-platform, or is that going to rest with the big players? Well, there's two kind of different aspects to it. You know, when I look at Facebook, I think very smart about controlling brand integrations on their platforms. YouTube didn't. YouTube was like, tell us, but we can't track it. We don't really care. Which I think at the time was the right play for YouTube because it allowed more money. So it allowed people to become full-time content creators much faster, which allowed them to create more content, which allowed them to get more followers and make YouTube into kind of what it was from that creator point of view. So I think it was the right play for YouTube to not get involved at that point in time. But then they saw the money that was being made and said, we want a piece of the action. Yeah, I think YouTube is nowhere near as intrusive as Facebook, Instagram is. Instagram, like, you need to use their branded content tool. Like, you're kind of required. If you're a major influencer and you post without using it, they're going to call you the next day. I've heard many stories about that. <laughs> for them, they're controlling it because ultimately their plan was to have everything reside in the platform. So for any platform that is only Facebook or only Instagram, I would be fearful of your future because they're going to replace you. They're going to have better analytics. They're going to have a lot better features. You're screwed. But do I think that there's other platforms out there that look at you know, YouTube, Musical.ly, Twitter, everything that bigger brands need? Absolutely. I think we've seen that. You know, A lot of brands, especially ones newer in influencer marketing, need a lot of different tools. I believe your company offers a good amount of them, right? And they need that help. And that's why you're offering that solution. So I think that if all you're doing is trying to connect brands with influencers and it's through a marketplace on those platforms, you're screwed. If you're offering other services that Facebook's not going to get into, you're fine. When this came out, someone was like, well, how do you feel about it? I'm like, well, my platform is all qualitative data. I'm like a safety check. So I think I'm fine. 
and then Facebook will announce tomorrow what they're doing and I'll be like no <laughs> looking for a job uh, that's one really interesting thing that's going to happen in the next year other than that I just think continued consolidation I think that there's nothing else that's been announced that's really like got my attention you know where Snapchat will be in a year I think is interesting because they're just trying to figure it out I think that they realize oh we made a lot of mistakes and how do we get out of this and they're trying a whole bunch of stuff and so in a year we'll kind of know if it works or if it doesn't Maybe yeah. they should have taken the thirty billion dollar check from Google, or the. I mean, I would have taken thirty billion dollars. Like, I mean, I get the rationale behind it, but I would have taken the money. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, or in the influencer space, yeah. what would you do? That's a good question. I would have it be more around influencer partnerships. I would try to find something where you can elevate a brand because I also think that there's so many wonderful creators out there that don't have necessarily the biggest following, but they have a really engaged following and their content's great, and they have a really good kind of message. I think there's so much to do around teaming up with influencers in that way. Yeah. The other thing that I actually would personally love to do is really do a lot more activism. Because I think that a lot of creators are actually down to contribute to causes for good. I think the Ad Council has done some really awesome stuff with a lot of really large creators. And I think that that is something that is important, and I think that getting kids to care about things should be a huge priority. I mean. People aren't voting. They're on their cell phones the whole entire time. Like Getting them to actually understand what it's like for people who are less fortunate is going to be a struggle. And I think that we have such a huge divide in our country right now. And I think if everyone kind of just had a better idea of how the other half lives, then you kind of understand how you can come together and fix things. But now everyone's in their own kind of like little technological bubble. So I think that would be like a really interesting area to go into. Where can people find out more about you and more about Transparent Influence? So I have a website, transparentinfluence.com. So you can go there, schedule a demo and check out the platform. And I would say that that's probably the best way. You can always see me up on LinkedIn or Facebook or anything. You know, we're working on some really cool stuff right now. I think that, you know, being a newer company and one that pivots depending on the data, we're going to be doing some cool stuff pretty soon. And if you're going to be at VidCon, you can hit me up. I'll be there until Saturday morning there and then I am leaving. <laughs> Well, Chris, thank you so much. It's been awesome to follow your career over the years from the time we met when you were at Machinima to yeah. doing this stuff at you now and consulting and launching your business. So yeah. congratulations on taking the entrepreneurial leave. Congrats on the launch. It's awesome to see. And I hope more people will follow Transparent Influence because the mission of making this space more open and transparent, obviously, and then just giving greater visibility into what it's like to work with a specific talent and ensuring that brands have good experiences, talent understand the expectations, and there's good experience on both sides is critical. So thanks for doing that work and appreciate you sharing your story. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.